When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Physically, Marcus, it's not a long way from where Jerry Garcia started in life to hate Asbury, but it was a long road to get to the golden road with the Grateful Dead. And this week, we're going to discuss how the Grateful Dead got to where they are, a very interesting little road that has a lot of curves and um, oh, and a lot of uh, swirls. Yeah. <laughs> swirls, swirls and twirly roads, all of it. It's so multicolored, swirly in here. Very starry, too, and spacey. <laughs> well, I think everybody knows that the Grateful Dead came out of the, the San Francisco scene of the 60s, but I don't know that everybody knows how they got there. And that's what we want to talk about on this episode of The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus Goldman, and I'm one of those people who has no idea until today of how the Grateful Dead came to be the Grateful Dead. I had known about the Warlocks, which we will get into, but other than that, I knew nada nada. As a seasoned veteran of dead shows through the 70s and 80s and into the 90s, I still learn stuff, including the fact that one of the Grateful Dead Ed's predecessor bands actually released music over 20 years ago, and I didn't even realize it. So we'll talk about that as we dig into the Grateful Dead. Of course, you can't start this band or this discussion without the man himself, Jerry Garcia, right? It's really him and Bob Weir and Pigpen, Ron McKernan, Phil Lesh, and Bill Kreutzman. They all come together and how those streams all flow together. Pre-psychedelia for the most part, except for Jerry, uh, really is an interesting story because as they flow downstream together and end up coagulating in the San Francisco Bay, uh, they get into jug band music, which kind of pulls them together and leads them to the, be the band that you talked about, the Warlocks. 
It's the imbalanced history of rock and roll, as always, brought to you by Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hapro, pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014. I've got a uh, real what moment to start the podcast for you, Marcus. All righty. We talked about uh, the Grateful Dead and the, uh, the the jug band they were in, Mother McCree's Uptown Jug Champions. Mm-hmm. And uh, they changed their name to the Warlocks. And then they, as often will happen in rock and roll, found out there was already a band called the Warlocks, and they changed their name. We'll talk about changing the name to the Grateful Dead and all that. But do you know the band that the Warlocks that caused the dead to change their name became? I read it, but yes, it blew me away when I saw that in type. (laughs) I was like... The Velvet Underground were the Warlocks on the East Coast, and they didn't want to have a Velvet, you know, rivalry there. That's hilarious. Could you imagine the East Coast Warlocks versus the West Coast Warlocks? You know, in in motorcycle gang terms, that would be an ugly thing, although it probably would turn into a party because Warlocks would never fight with each other. (laughs) And in in the ethereal world as well, right? So, But that's the the other Warlocks. So one goes Velvet Underground and the other one goes Grateful Dead. Pretty crazy, right? Absolutely insane. And the band didn't really dig that name very much. They all basically objected to it, right? Then why did they keep it? That's so funny that everybody in the band objected to it and they're like, okay, but we'll keep it. Okay, if you think of the theme (laughs) as it were, it was viewed as some kind of socialist democracy, right? Uh, The band's all against it. Jerry brought it up and it's not like it was a campaign or anything, but it started to get around and the fans of the band kind of forced the other guys to go all right i guess we're the grateful dead then um the name stuck so the fans kind of forced it on them that's why that doesn't happen every day (laughs) except for the socialist marxist democracy that was the hate ashbury (laughs) (laughs) think about how much that scene influenced how much became rock and roll normal through the decades after that oh absolutely this is kind of how the whole thing comes together from Jerry's roots, and we'll talk about each of the members as we go through, but they kind of filter in, and most of them get into Mother McCree's Uptown Jug Band, right? They change up a little bit, and they get fill into the band, but Jerry had already been performing with his songwriting partner of great renown, the late Robert Hunter. Uh, they had begun performing together before all of this and didn't begin writing together for the dead until 67. So he was kind of an adjunct member and uh, John Perry Barlow would be kind of like Bob's lyrical muse on a lot of the songs that Weir would bring to the table in the future. But here in 1960 something, they're all just kind of getting to know each other a little bit. No discussion about the Grateful Dead can really start anywhere but beginning with Jerry Garcia. So what do you say we talk a little bit about Jerry? Captain Trips? Sure, Captain Trips. I figured out why they called him Captain Trips other than, you know, the acid connection. He was the first member of the band to drop acid. 
and I found out a lot of things about Jerry Garcia along the way that made him the perfect uh, foil for the guys in the, the Murray Pranksters and how they would come together would make so much sense oh, down so the line, funny. you know. He was born in San Francisco, Garcia. Uh, his family uh, had moved over from Spain. His dad, Joe, and his mom, Ruth, um, she was actually Ruth Clifford. I think she was Irish. They were music people. They, they loved music. It was around their house. Joe opened a bar. He was semi-retired at that point and got into a bit of a problem with the union. Decided to open his own place. And so Jerry Garcia had music around him from an early part of his life. Played a lot of music, piano. Started to learn instruments, you know, like the guitar and banjo. Uh, he became a banjo teacher. I think he meets one further in our story. He meets one of the guys because of his band waiting for banjo students. It's an interesting story. Jerry's family moved around for a number of reasons, one of them being the death of his father who died on a fly fishing trip. Mom did what she had to do. And at one point, I think in the story too, they moved because the bar that they owned was going to be demolished because it was part of a the new freeway ramp mm-hmm. system. So they got the money from that and moved somewhere else. And that is, that's kind of the life that Jerry had. It was kind of cool. It was music infused. Mm-hmm loss of his father was difficult also lost in his youth and i didn't really get the full picture of this until we were doing the research for this uh an important loss that he used to his advantage musically as well as when he was a kid was jerry losing uh part of his finger uh, his middle right finger his pick hand uh they were splitting wood on a family vacation and it was an accident and his brother basically cut off the end of his finger I also have a theory about that, by the way, that Garcia's unique picking style was accentuated by the absence of those digits on his uh, adjacent finger, and it allowed him to get a little extra action that nobody could quite figure out what he was doing. (laughs) What are you doing, man? (laughs) Sounds groovy. (laughs) mind-blowing. So these are the stories that represent Jerry's life, and a lot of times we talk about... Uh, trauma and, and and drama in kids' life, but Jerry's life was pretty cool. Maybe that's why he was such a cool dude. Very happy as a person. He was very inspiring to others. Uh, started smoking when he was a kid. Eight, uh, 1957 somewhere I saw him. It was the same year he, start, he first tried marijuana. Uh, he did uh, some acid in, when he was in the 60s, the early 60s when it started going around. So when the guys started getting together to form the band, he was like, well, well yeah, I guess everybody's doing the checklist of, well, yeah, I smoke pot. I did this. I did that. I did acid. What? Yeah. Oh, Captain Trips. That could be where he kind of got the nickname. But of course, mm-hmm. there would come a time past where we're discussing today where the entire band would be caught up in one long strange trip and uh, in different places in different ways all around this blue marble as the Grateful Dead adventure spread out to all kinds of things. Here in the beginning he's a kid, he likes his bluegrass music, he's taught country and bluegrass by his grandmother uh, listening to the Grand Ole Opry was an inspiration to him. And uh, finally, his mom remarried at one point. So they uh, they moved back in with mom and her new uh, her new husband. 
and got out of the neighborhood and moved out to Menlo Park. Now, for Jerry, uh, this is out of the San Francisco swing. You know, I mean, this is pre-scene. The beats aren't really in full force yet, but Jerry's already into what's going on there. Sometimes life takes us places that don't make sense at first, but having lived a pretty cool life to that point, it was moving to Menlo Park where Jerry first ran into racism and anti-Semitism. He was never having that, not from a young age. And it's one of those things that made you realize, as far as the psychic connections with people, why Garcia was such a cool guy to me. Yeah, he definitely was anti anything negative like that. And he had this vibe about him. I don't know how to describe it. I saw The Grateful Dead once. And the energy and the vibe of Jerry Garcia was special. There was just something about him. I'm not a huge Zed guy. I've seen him once. I do like their music. I'm glad you saw him once, man, because to say that means a lot, you know? Yeah. Experience that a little. Absolutely. And it's one of those experiences I feel that in the rock and roll world was very important at that time. You had to experience the Grateful Dead. Even if you don't like their music to experience, it was a blast. When they went into space, it was absolutely crazy. There was a, an energy about the band that was completely different than anything I'd ever seen experienced. I was 100% sober for that show. I was like, what? if I'm going to experience the dead, I really want to pay attention to what they're doing what? and what they're doing <laughs> on stage. And so I totally did the opposite of what most of the people around us were doing. People were dropping acid left and right around us, and it was totally cool. People smoking weed all over the place. No biggie. People I don't drinking. know what you're talking about. Man. A Grateful Dead show is what a Grateful Dead show is, and it is a great experience. Even while Walking up to the venue and all the people vending, you know, selling uh, bracelets and cookies and brownies and sodas and waters and things like that because they follow the dead around is an experience. But it was a lot of that happened because of Jerry and the band's vibe. The vibe came out of the association with Kesey and the Murray Pranksters and, and Neil Cassidy and the further on the bus, the whole nine yards. But before you get to fly, you got to walk. Although it does involve some low-level flights. Mm-hmm. Garcia starts smoking pot. He smokes two joints with a friend. Up in the hills, just kind of walking around, high, and having such a great time. After that, he, he just kind of got loose mm-hmm. and started studying art. It's the commonality that we see a lot of times, art students, right, finding their way into the music world. And his teacher there was a pretty cool guy who became well-known, Wally Hedrick. Uh, he really worked on his drawing and painting skills, which, I don't know, I got a couple Garcia ties hanging in the closet, so I know that you know what I know about his ability with art was superior, even though he didn't do much with it in his lifetime. Mm -hmm. The other thing that Hedrick is important for is introducing Jerry to the work of Jack Kerouac. And he became a huge influence in Jerry and in the band because wandering, exploring became their mantra and explore they would. I remember being turned on to Jack Kerouac's On the Road for the first time and being blown away by what I was reading. I had not read anything like it in my life. It was crazy all the way through, but it was such a fun tale. I read it at probably 
18, 19 years old. So I was at about the same age Jerry Garcia was. He was probably a little younger, right about and that same about age. And about the same age I was when I read it, too. Bingo. I think, it, I think it's a rite of passage thing. Well, around that time, when Jerry was getting to be that age, he was also questioning things. And uh, here's another recurring theme that we find on the podcast. He got himself into a bit of trouble that leads him to a stint in the United States Army. <laughs> How do you think that went? The story behind that is pretty hilarious. The fact that he just kind of slugged his way or slagged his way through boot camp, did mm-hmm. as little as possible, and then he was busted for being AWOL all the time. Just was like, all yeah, whatever. Was late, late to his all of his absolutely. assignments. Absolutely had no care in the world about being on time or a structured life of the '60s. And Jerome G. Garcia. <laughs> Private Garcia, you know, I just trying to see it and think about it. And it's kind of funny in my brain, but even, although I'm sure it was hell. So he gets his uh, general discharge in December 1960. He wasn't in very long. And he, he did his thing. He, he maybe learned his lesson because uh, despite all the other stuff he would get into, Jerry never uh, got, got pulled over for driving mom's stolen car again. Instead, he bought his own car. It was a Cadillac. You put a lot of people in that, right? <laughs> Move or, all your equipment. Yeah. Or live in it if you needed to. Yeah, and he true. did. That's how he gets to the point where things are starting to move in the right direction for him. He's post-Army. He's trying to find his way forward. And then comes a, a seminal moment. <sighs> he gets into a car with a 16-year-old driver who's a friend of Jerry's. Name's Paul Spiegel. And there's other people in the car. And they're flying down the highway, 90 miles an hour. And they collide with a guardrail. The car goes rolling. How everybody didn't die, I don't know. But uh, Jerry gets hurled through the windshield, breaks his collarbone. A couple of the other people were thrown, thrown clear. But Spiegel ends up dying in the crash. It's horrific. And it changed him. It changed his point of view. Maybe got him on a little more on the right path to lasting longer and not being involved in this kind of like craziness he actually said that was the slingshot for the rest of my life it was like a second chance then i got serious and in garcia's world getting serious just meant getting down to it and thank god that he did right Mm -hmm. he meets hunter and they start working together but you know it's just a duo he meets david nelson who he'd later form the new riders of the purple sage with but you know they're not quite really doing anything they're just kind of playing around Mm -hmm. but then our cast of characters begins to come together marcus he meets phil lesh now lesh was not really like a bass player waiting to get into rock band was he yeah those cats uh, met at a new year's eve party a bohemian new year's eve party Yes. What would a bohemian New Year's Eve party be like? 1962, 63. Pretty much. I don't know, man. Hey. Groovy evening. Yes. Well, from that meeting, they got an idea that kind of started their association with each other and with uh, a Berkeley radio station, KPFA, a public radio station, community radio. Phil recorded Jerry doing some songs, and it became part of a 90-minute special on the radio station, and it went over really well. Those sessions continued and have led to a decades-long now and now multiple-century relationship with KPFA and the Grateful Dead family. 
think about it, man. They're just a couple kids. Yeah. Laying some stuff down on tape, and that relationship ends up lasting forever. It's a warming story when you hear bands and their ties to radio stations because it really ties the local communities into the growth of that band. And it, it, it shows you a lot, too, about the band because you have a lot more um, documentation of what happened and I just I really but like it the- also it also says a lot about the dead for using their power in the universe I'm using the air quotes to help KPFA continuing to help KPFA and I'm sure they were there for them when they started the Grateful Dead Hour and all that kind of stuff so it's kind of cool that that continues you know what continues Jerry Garcia playing music teaching (laughs) guitar banjo now one of the guys who was one of his banjo students is named bob matthews and he would go on to engineer a bunch of dead albums and he introduced him to bob weir new year's eve 63 that's when they met think about that weir's a few years younger they kind of meet on new year's eve jerry's coming into his prime bob's going into his senior year of high school i think Jerry was playing mostly old-timey and bluegrass, folk music and blues, that kind of stuff. He was with a band called the Sleepy Hollow Hog Stompers. How you stomp a hog, I don't know, but it must be (laughs) Paul Bunyan to do it. But they were bluegrass, which leads into our, you know, starting point, which is the jug band thing, which is really what led to them coming together. That kind of music kind of led to these guys coming together. Going on the mountain, get me a load of pine. Some of them would stay together, some would stay adjacent, and then, you know, some of them would leave for good. Now, after Garcia and Weir started getting together, they hooked up with Ron Pigpen McKernan, who is one of those ones who would leave too soon, one of the early members of the 27 Club. Yep. They formed a, a group called Mother McCree's Uptown Jug Champions, which I just found out actually released their music. I shouldn't be surprised that Grateful Dead Records or the Grateful Dead, you know, family or Dick's Picks or any of that stuff mm-hmm. would have found and released this stuff by now. But there you have it. I wouldn't marry a fat gal, I'm telling you why. Fat girl even do things on the sly. You look for your soup to be good and hot. She never even put a soup on in a pot. She's on the road again. Georgie Mom. I'm still learning stuff about the dead all these years later. That's kind of where the dead axis begins to turn, right? With those three there, and um, that's also, by the way, around the time that Ken Kesey, who was in the uh, neighborhood of that uh, New Year's Eve party uh, in the Bohemian tradition, and he starts showing up with the acid tests, mm-hmm. and the dead become part of that eventually. But at this stage, you know, Garcia's taken his first LSD. He felt that it freed him because he was able to uh, see that he was trying to live a straight life, as he always called it, and that it wasn't going to work, and then he needed to really just look outside and spread his wings and go do what he was going to do. An important point for anyone in their life. But here it affected so many in a positive musical way. It's kind of neat. It is kind of neat. It sounds like Mother McCree's Uptown Jug Champions sound kind of evolved with Phil Lesh and Bill Kreutzman in the band. Hence the change into the Warlocks. 
you think about it, the music has been adapted. And we've we've already talked before we started doing the episode about how some of the songs that Jerry was playing, even back to when he was doing shows with Robert Hunter before he met any of these guys, are the same songs. A lot of them are traditional songs that they adapted to their own way of doing things. But here at this point, you're adding a bassist. By the way, Phil wasn't a bassist. Did I mention that before? You have not he, mentioned it yet, but he was learning on the fly. He really was. And they had Bill Kreutzman, whose family had both musical and uh, sports uh, notoriety. His, I think it was his grandfather who was some famous football coach who coached the Rams and Redskins and all kinds of college teams. So Bill was around the life and was apparently a little bit more on the jazzy side. Lesh came at it differently. We were talking about how he was writing charts and stuff. Mm-hmm. Doing some arranging of music and uh, putting together uh, charts for bands, which is completely different than anything uh, the Grateful Dead did. The music that he was involved with may not seem like the best training ground for being the bass player in the Grateful Dead, but some of it was structured like, you know, uh, for the army band that he was working with and some of it was orchestra stuff. But he also got turned on to jazz and a part of that is through Tom Constantin, who would later join the Grateful Dead. What came around was they needed a bass player. And even though Phil wasn't a bass player, he learned in his own way. He didn't learn with uh, a lot of uh, you play this way, kid, kind of a pressure on him. He learned to play the way he wanted to play. And if you listen to Phil's playing inside the Grateful Dead down the line, it's really very non-traditional in its structure and focus and more along the lines of how Garcia would play his leads than it is about any kind of a structure, timing, rhythm thing. Even down to the band when uh, Mickey Hart would join and they would do the the rhythm devils uh, and do space and drum solos and stuff like that. It was never just about straight keeping time. It was always about exploring. And that came out of Phil and Bill joining the band. So did they set up a structure that allowed them to explore or did they just completely freeform it? Because you have the power of Phil Lesh's structuring in there, but you also have these guys who are skilled, they're passionate, and they're learning, but at the same time, they're ex- they're going off in their own little tangents, so did they structure their freeformness, or did they freeform it completely? When they were forming the sound, which comes after our story today, so we are kind of getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but I think it's worth discussing. Because I'll talk about it again. Trust yeah. me. <laughs> oh, we will. When they were playing in the acid test, when they were playing live, taking acid, crowd around them, whether it's free concert in Golden Gate Park, for reference, check Live Dead, or whether it was in a, a venue setting, they were expanding all their borders. They were going all the way out. Normally, it wouldn't. But it included the rhythm section, so Mm -hmm. to speak. If you listen to those two elements, bass and drums, separate them in your head when you're listening, you hear some amazing things going on in there. One note flowing over top and and cascading like water over each other down the mountain, through the valley. Mm -hmm. And and that's how it kind of flows, like water together. And all the notes make sense. These guys developed this somewhere in the middle of one of those 
those all night jams. <laughs> One of those fourteen hour Light. acid jams. Three o'clock in the morning playing <laughs> Love Light somewhere in nineteen sixty eight. The fucking light goes on and it never goes off again. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the light did go off for one member of the original Grateful Dead. Ron McKernan was uh, a talented guy. He wasn't a stoner. He wasn't a a tripster, but he was a hell of a drinker. He's a professional at it, I'd say. And um, it really led to his demise. He just drank himself till the liver fell apart. And he is a member of the 27 Club, which I mentioned earlier. He stayed with the band and his struggles to keep up with the psychedelic arrangements and forms led to them to reach out to get another person to play piano, which leads to Tom Constantin joining the band. We were talking about just a little while ago about him coming in. He knew Phil. Mm Mm-hmm. So these guys start all kind of pulling from their friends and influences. And during that time when Tom was on stage with the band, Big Ben would still be on stage, you know, singing leads on his songs, including Good Lovin', by the way, which, you know, Bobby did on the studio recorded version later, but that was originally a Big Ben song. And Turn On Your Love Light was always one of the great songs when the dead took the stage. I have a couple of recordings on vinyl of, of that song uh, in a shorter form than they would perform, like you know, only an eight-minute version of Love Light with the uh, Big Ben. Without a part of the soul of the band that definitely was missed after he was gone but almost like a, a, a an amoeba it just kind of like you know, permutated and split and moved along and the band would gain and lose members through the decades and the first one was ron mm-hmm. who died in 1973 yeah marcus i know my timing's bad after talking about a member of the grateful dead who dies from alcohol abuse mm-hmm. But our friends at Crooked Eye Brewery always preach to drink responsibly and to make sure, you know, you're taking care of yourself and don't be, you know, foolish about it. That's why I feel completely comfortable to go in and have a pint or two because they're friends who only make good stuff they know you're going to enjoy. So let's go to Crooked Eye and then we're going to hop back and go back to the hate and hang in San Francisco. Sound good? Sounds good. Nothing quite. Quenches that thirst like a pint of crooked eye. Am I right, Marcus, or am I right? I would have to say the latter. <laughs> you are correct. <laughs> yes, or right. Left, right, correct is all good. And that's because when you go in the crooked eye and you look at the board, you're always going to find something that makes you feel right. Right there in the heart of Hapro at York Road in Montgomery, go see the gang at Crooked Eye. It's all good, and it's all happening at Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hapro. The fact that Crooked Eye has survived the pandemic and done a great job staying open and taking all of the necessary precautions to keep everybody safe is a wonderful thing. And I think it's a testament to not only their business, but who they are as people. Well, we raise our pints to you, and now they're pouring 
at Jamie's House of Music in Lansdowne. That's not too far from you in Delaware County, right? That is true. It's right down the street, literally about two and a half, three miles from my pad. So live well, music and Crooked Eye near me, too. Jamie's House of Music does great work with live music, and they never had somebody there pouring, and now the Crooked Eye crew is there bringing in all those delicious brews from Hatboro. So Delaware County, come and check out Crooked Eye and the great tunes at Jamie's House of Music. All the details about all this on CrookedEyeBrewery.com, their website, and follow them on Facebook, too. Whenever you need a tasty pint, remember, Crooked Eye Brewery, right in the heart of Hatboro. We're going back to the early days of the Grateful Dead and going from their jug band days through to their arrival as a band on Warner Brothers Records and uh, in the hate in San Francisco in the 60s. And we were talking about Phil Lesh and how he was a novice at playing bass when he really, when he joined the band. He got a lot of help from a buddy in the San Francisco scene, though. Jack Cassidy of the Airplane uh, gets a huge thumbs up from uh, Phil in his autobiography for helping to show him the ropes. Mm-hmm. Cassidy's still going, just celebrated his 77th birthday. They're waiting to go back. You know Hot Tuna's waiting to go back as soon as this thing clears. They were an eternal touring band, as were their brothers in The Grateful Dead. Without knowing it, a lot of what Phil learned from classical and band music spilled into his playing but he developed his own feel that puts him in the category for a lot of people of some of his uh, admitted influences like charles mingus or jack bruce and of course cassidy as well mm-hmm. but you know lesh is uh, part of a little dead family joke you know you don't see a whole lot of signs telling them what to play because it seems pointless if you've been to more than a couple shows, right? The sign that you would always see show up at shows would be somebody with a placard, you know, the white cardboard sign. It would say, let Phil sing because Phil was a decent singer. He really is. And he showed that more when he did Phil and Friends later. But at that point, he only had a couple songs. And again, we're getting ahead of ourselves here on the imbalance history of rock and roll, but that's what we do, right? Yep. Can I talk to you a little bit about Bobby Weir? Sure. Bobby. The girls love Bobby. That's all I'm going to say. I've seen where the wolf has slept by the silver stream. I can tell by the mark he left you were in his dream. Oh, child of countless trees. Handsome devil, young, dashing, great rhythm guitar player, and turned into quite a vocalist and songwriter and a key part of the Grateful Dead long-term in the 70s and 80s and 90s. What I didn't know, we were learning stuff all the time uh, about our heroes as we do this podcast, I never knew that Bob was dyslexic. 
and it was undiagnosed when he was a kid. So that could explain some of his um, his trouble learning music because he was trying to read the notes in the wrong direction, stuff like that. And at one point, he ran into and met his future lyricist pal John Perry Barlow, and this is all right as they're all coming of age. And then we talked about earlier him meeting Garcia at a um, party at a friend's house on New Year's Eve in 63. They end up playing all night together afterwards. <laughs> So cool, right? And the, again, the Beatles kind of in, uh, influenced them to form a band. They said that. They said that the Beatles changed everything from their jug band sound to making them want to be more poppy and rocky. In the early short form songs that they wrote as a band, you see some of that. You can see their two, two and a half minute songs, some mm-hmm. of them. Yep. That didn't last long. <laughs> yeah, that lasted two albums, I bet. <laughs> okay, it lasted one album, maybe. Okay, one album. Because <laughs> I'm looking at the first album, and there's one, two, three, four, five songs under two minutes, and a sixth song that's three minutes and 18 seconds long, and then two over, one five, one six, and one ten. Yeah, they're exploring all the angles. Before we get to the first album, though, we got to complete the unit here. You know, we've got we've got everybody coming in, right? And... Mm-hmm. Um, also joining them along the way and becoming one of the cast of characters is Mickey Hart, who would officially join the band. He'd leave for a little while and do his own thing, but he would be with the band pretty much from then on. And they, as well as the Allman Brothers, were one of the first bands to show up with two drummers uh, ready to go when they did their tours. So they make the move uh, to the Warlocks as a name and then quickly switch to the Grateful Dead and it starts to stick. And my real reason for bringing and all this up, Marcus, is because a lot of times people who are blazing trails but don't realize it find it difficult to find their thing until suddenly they find it and it seems like it was always the way it was. And that was the case with The Grateful Dead. Let's talk about those songs on that first album because that's their intro to the world. <laughs> it began the accumulation of a Grateful Dead nation known as the Deadheads. Mm-hmm. You mentioned, you know, the people who would follow them on tour. There are people who would schedule their entire life around when the dead were going to tour this year. And that included jobs and whatever else they had to take care mm-hmm. of in life. It would all schedule around that. There are people that have seen the dead a thousand times, two thousand yep. times. I'm a piker. I mean, I'm only in the 30s somewhere, you know. I'm an aunt. I'm an aunt one time. (laughs) (laughs) I like that, though. The term, an aunt. (laughs) Seriously. Well, let's talk about the songs on this debut self-titled album by the Grateful Dead, signed to Warner Brothers Records at a time when Warner Brothers was doing all different kinds of stuff, but wasn't really a rock and roll place. And the Dead would be with them for a number of years. Going into making this album, do you think it was a conscious effort on their part to pull from all their different influences as far as uh, picking the songs that would be on the album? I think it was. I think you hear all of the influences throughout the album and I think they mixed them well but after listening to it I would say that this is a first album for the Grateful Dead who is a band that is trying to find themselves And 
I think if I would have heard this new, I would have liked it. But I also think this band still needs to find themselves. Well, if you think of it, it is a blueprint. They want to get a couple songs from Bob into the mix. So they do Jesse Fuller's Beat It On Down the Line. Mm-hmm. Well, this And the new, new Minglewood Blues, which is one of two songs written by Noah Lewis, who was a jug band champion. He was a harmonica player who was in a jug band. I think they were from Memphis, the band he was in. And uh, that included the uh, Viola Lee Blues, which features both Bob and Jerry singing and is a glimmer at what the Grateful Dead would become. A 10-minute song stretched out featuring solos by Garcia and other cool playing by the other guys, but mainly featuring Garcia on Viola Lee Blues, uh, written by the same Noah Lewis. Then you also have a song which, I don't know, I probably saw the dead do it at least five, six times. Uh, Morning Dew uh, starts side two with Jerry singing. Back to side one, the great Sonny Boy Williamson represented with Pigpen singing on Good Morning Little Schoolgirl, which would be one of those great slow smoldering blues jams that they would psychedelicize through the years when Pigpen was in the band. Jerry singing on Cold Rain and Snow, uh, sitting on top of the world. Again, we're reaching into the Jug Band songbook. The, the Mississippi Sheiks were popular. They were on OK Records uh, in the 30s, and they did like guitar and fiddle, and uh, kind of like that kind of an influence. And that song would make itself onto a lot of people's albums, including The Grateful Dead. And then the Soul Garcia original on this first album. He would later write most of his songs with Robert Hunter, but on this album he wrote Cream Puff War, which finishes side one. They're really just looking at what they came from. Some of these are songs that they played in the Jug Band and in the Warlocks. And some of them are songs that they kind of worked on together since they got together. I mean, the kind of jam that goes on on the Viola Lee Blues isn't what Noah Lewis had in mind. But it's certainly what Cap Trips had in mind in 1967. Remember, he'd been psychedelicized for a couple years. Oh, yeah. And it sounds like the rest of the band had been a little psychedelicized for a short time. And they were learning to come together and play during this time psychedelically. I don't want to start making up words like psychedelically, but think about it. Is that a made-up word? I don't think so. They got into a groove, a psychedelic groove, by altering their brainwaves and their bodies. 
bodies and getting all ethereal with their music, syncing up in an ethereal way. I can't believe these words are coming out of my mouth to this, describe it. But, but this it, is where they started. This is what Marcus they did. And it is where they started. And all those little tendrils all work their way out into the future, which we'll explore in future episodes. But here, we wanted to get the, the picture of the band coming together, Captain Trips leading the way in so many ways. Oh, yeah. And getting around to doing this first record with these guys. For this first record and for Anthem of the Sun, their second record, uh, they worked with David Hassinger, a producer who did a lot of different stuff. Uh, and most notably, he produced a couple records for the Electric Poons, but he wasn't part of their long-term future. But he helped to get the Cosmic Rider going. After that, they took control and would continue to grow in the manner in which they would both control and influence not just the music they would make, not just the tours they would do, but all the things related to their business, their family. And uh, we'll talk about that in other episodes. But here at the beginning, they're laying the groundwork. They're building the framework, putting together a, a, a blueprint for future explorations. And it doesn't do the biggest thing as far as sales or charting or anything like that. But it's kind of like you plant your flag on the beach and say, well, we're here. Yeah. And then what happens after that is indeed one long, strange trip, my friend. What they did is remarkable and how they were able to build a community slash fan base the way they were is mind boggling if you try to wrap your head around it. And, and it all happened the, organically, too. That's yes. the thing that people forget. Uh, it it might have been as simple as back in 67 when they started going more on regional touring up and down the coast or maybe heading in town. A few of the San Francisco fans saying, hey, the guys are leaving Monday. They're going to do a run up to Seattle and back. I'm going. You come in, yeah. we can get a ticket on the way. We can get a ticket there. Bring some peanut butter sandwiches and some mushrooms. Yeah. And let's go. Yeah. Don't forget to get a yeah. big canteen of water because there were no water bottles back yeah. then. Yeah. And let's stop in, uh, let's stop up in, uh, what's that? What was that county in north of San Francisco where everybody. Humboldt. Yeah. Let's stop in Humboldt on our way up pick to up Seattle the, uh, and pick up the flower. Head up to Marin on yes. the way out of town. <laughs> Definitely. I mean. But, you know, that's kind of an organic way of uh, realizing that the, the, the fans came along for the ride willingly and it wasn't like suddenly it happened it just started to happen and i think even they got to a point where they were surprised like you're here and we're in chicago and you're from new mexico how does that happen and they started learning about it down the line yes we're going down the line as the dead would do true one of the things that we'll get into in future episodes which is mind-blowing to me is how open they were to allowing everybody who attended their show to be able to record their shows if they wanted to they're like you can bring in taping equipment we do not care and as we see it did not hurt their sales one bit people would listen to the albums and then they'd be like oh yeah i remember when they played third song off this album at this show that i was at in 1977 i'm gonna go listen to that bootleg after i listen to this album and people collect bootlegs and then with the bootlegs comes merchandise so it was totally a win-win and however they came up with that idea or whatever compelled them to allow that was brilliant it was fucking brilliant that they did i can that. tell you we're we're ahead of where we are for this episode 
but I, and, and I don't mind. I'll talk about it again when we do another episode. It just started happening. People, first off, you got to remember 1967, you couldn't record shit. 1969, 70, you couldn't record shit, okay? There was no small recorder. There was a wall and sack. When cassette recorders came in, you started to be able to use those to record things, but you couldn't sneak them into a show. Eventually, it got to the point where people were, were going to shows and bringing gear. And the band never thought to stop it. And by the time that anybody probably stopped to look at what it was doing, whether it was impacting, i.e. the record guys, uh, whether it was impacting sales, uh, it was too late to stop it anyway. And rather than do that and really fight the tide, Hmm. the band was smart and they decided to go with the flow, let the fans take it home. They didn't seem to be impacting sales. They weren't hurting. They were the big way they really made money was to be on the road, and it didn't have any negative impact on their shows. In fact, their shows start to become so popular that a guy named Dick started a whole record label called Dick's Picks, where he, you know, would find shows and great quality stuff, get the band's permission, and start to release them on his label. The Dead would do stuff on their own label, and some of the later album releases, and when they were on Arista, we'll talk about it at some point, were basically. Um, the songs that we're talking about from this jug band era recorded acoustic in you know uh, on stage in the some point in the 70s from the song about tragedy impending uh we're going to move swiftly to a song about tragedy tragedy narrowly averted it's another in our long list of tragedy songs but this one is a tragedy narrowly averted it goes like this and there's a companion electric album too and we're not prepared to talk about all this stuff today but it grows organically marcus once upon a time there was an engineer drove a locomotive both far and near accompanied by a monkey when you approach things about the grateful dead it's a rarity to find things that were forced uh, or not kind of an organic evolution. And part of it's just the nature of the people involved. They're the most organic band of all time. <laughs> if the Grateful Dead was a farmer, they'd be the original organic farmer, Marcus, and that's a fact. Oh, my God. <laughs> but they are one of the first to definitely go in that organic direction. And we can talk another. That's an episode we have to do about them and the almonds and the others yep. that really set that kind of a format into in the play yeah the predecessors of fish yep and don't <laughs> get one of those agree. guys on to yep. talk about it. Awesome. oh man i feel renewed in the waters of captain trips and all the music that i've been listening to <laughs> i am renewed <laughs> <laughs> now marcus i'm going to say it this is definitely a topic where we can expect the deadheads that listen to the podcast to chime in speak up about other things, things we may not have thought of or things we might have missed. So the inbox is imbalancehistory at gmail.com. Tell them about the socials, man. Our socials are on Facebook, the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Great place for us to interact together. Twitter, Imbalanced Histo. But if you look up the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll and see our little green logo with the guitar, you will see it. And we're on Instagram, too, the Imbalanced <laughs> History of Rock and Roll. So You know, please. I wonder if people would, would like to have that, uh, that logo 
on a coffee mug or a coaster like we do because Marisa made them for us for for Christmas last year. I don't know. Yeah, if, if it's something you'd be interested in, hit us with an email about that too. But mainly, feed us information that you have in your universe or your circle uh, about this early period of the dead from jug bands to the hate. And I'm sure there'll be uh, future episodes where the journey continues, my friend. I can't wait to talk more about the dead. And I can't wait especially to learn more about the dead. They're one of those bands that there's just so, 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 so much to learn. I'm going to go listen to English Town 77. It's an iconic show. If you don't know it, go find a bootleg somewhere and enjoy. And until the next time that we get together to do this really crazy fucked up podcast, I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus Goldman. And this is The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. 